0: has no body now but yours no hands no feet on earth but yours yours are the hands with which he blesses all the world yours are the feet with which he walks to do good yours are the eyes through which he looks compassion on this world yours are the hands yours are the feet Yours are the eyes. You are his body. Well, good morning, everybody. It's always good to see the sleep-in service. If I haven't met you before, my name is Grant, one of the teaching pastors here. Just glad that you're here. If you have a Bible or a Bible app or your outline with you, we're going to be in John chapter 13. And as you're turning there, I'm going to actually ask you to start praying for something that's going to start in three weeks. In three weeks, we're going to start a brand new series called The Naked Truth from the Song of Solomon. Solomon. Uh, basically somebody dared me to preach this book. And so I'm going to do that. We did Revelation. We've done lots of other things here over the years. We're going to go after this one, and we're going to ask a single question. Why would God put an intimate love song in the middle of my Bible? Why? What's it there for? How, what, does it have implications for us as single people, married people, relational people? I mean, how in the world does that all go together? So you pray, and I'll preach, and we'll see how it all works itself out. At the center of every church is a committed core of people. Who love Jesus more than anything, who love other people who also love Jesus, who love people who are far from God and know, don't know Jesus yet. They're a group of people who steward their finances in a way that proves they love Jesus more than anything. And because they love Jesus, they have a commitment, a commitment to consistently connect in biblical community. This entire series has been not about trying to sign you up for some kind of a program, The goal of this series has been for you to take one step closer to Jesus and in doing so come a little bit closer to his heart for his church because the church always has and always will belong to Jesus. I've preached this message from this passage so many times that I've actually lost track of it over the last 16 or 17 so years. I keep being drawn back to it over and over and over again because it's so unbelievably compelling. This passage is about Jesus and his small group. They're doing life together. They're meeting after hours, kind of off the clock, and and they're having a meal that held unbelievable historical significance for each and every one of them. These guys are together. They have to be together because they've left their family, they've left their livelihoods behind them, and Jesus is the one that has called them together for this moment. So they gather around food, they gather around tradition, they gather around Jesus, and then Jesus blows their minds. Here's what happens. It was just before the Passover festival. Jesus knew the hour had come for Him to leave this world and go to the Father, having loved His own who were in the world. He loved them to the end. Some of your translations say He then showed them the full extent of His love. The evening meal was in progress. The devil had already prompted Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, to betray Jesus. Jesus knew the Father had put all things under His power, that He'd come from God, was returning to God, so He got up from the meal took off his outer clothing, wrapped a towel around his waist. After that, he poured water into a basin, began to wash his disciples' feet, drying them with the towel that was wrapped around him. He came to Simon Peter who said to him, Lord, are you going to wash my feet? Stop just for a second. The washing of feet had cultural significance. Any of those of you who have traveled with me to Israel, understand the country is dry, the country is dusty. At the end of a long day of plodding around Israel, being able to wash your feet from like the knees down is just good. It's just important. But it was not only just an attitude of cleanliness or an act of cleanliness, it actually had everything to do with bestowing honor. Normally, the lowest ranking household servant had the job of scrubbing between the toes of honored guests. And that's what Jesus decides to do. Lord, are you going to wash my feet, Simon Peter said? Jesus replied, you don't realize now what I'm doing, but later you will understand. No, said Peter, you will never wash my feet. Jesus answered, unless I wash you, you have no part with me. Then Lord Simon Peter replied, not just my feet, but my hands and my head as well. (laughs) Jesus answered, those who've had a bath need only to wash their feet. Their whole body's clean, and you're clean, though not every one of you. For he knew who was going to betray him, and that's why he said that not everyone was clean. When he'd finished washing their feet, he put on his clothes, returned to his place. Do you understand what I've done for you? He asked them. You call me teacher and Lord, and rightly so. That's what I am. Now that I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you should also wash one another's feet. I've set for you an example that you should do as I've done for you. Very truly, I tell you, no servant's greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. Now that you know these things, you will be blessed, underline, circle this next word, if you do them, if. Some of you are so familiar with this story, you've already turned me off. I understand. I get it. Sometimes we hear the story so many times. I mean, we've heard it since we were little tiny kids, right? And it's just like, I get it. Grandma's supposed to watch. Yeah, I get it. Service, blah, blah, blah. Move on. But today, can we, can we try to not allow our overfamiliarity with this story to steal what God may have for us? Because I've got a simple question. How do you think Jesus would host a small group? Like if he wanted to call people together and really connect them in a deep sort of way, how do you think he'd ask? What kind of questions would he ask? What do you think would actually happen if Jesus did something that we talk about here all the time? And I just want to reinforce to you, we don't talk about small groups here as a program. I don't care about programs. This is actually a biblical command, that we're supposed to connect somehow. So let me ask the question, when Jesus hosts a small group, what happens? Number one, He initiates a gathering. In week 2 of this series we saw that God was constantly and persistently calling his people together. It started in the garden, then it moved to the altars, the tabernacles, the temples, the lakeside. Ultimately, it will end with us gathering in the throne room of heaven to worship the lamb, both lion and the lamb. But God all through history has been calling people together, to gather together, but it started in the garden. When a God who existed in community before time began created man in his image to have an existence, never in isolation but always in community. Dr. Gilbert Belizikian says these words, community is deeply grounded in the nature of God. It flows from who God is. Because He is community, He creates community. It's His gift of Himself to humans. Listen to this, therefore, the making of community may not be regarded as an optional decision for Christians. What we're going to talk about today is not optional, it's imperative. He goes on, it's compelling and an irrevocable necessity, a binding divine mandate for all believers at all time. So think about it. Community is in the very nature of who God is. He's a trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit in perfect relationship with each other. And the Bible says we were all created in the image of God, which means God intrinsically wired into us an understanding that we were never meant to be alone. I mean, think about it. God creates mankind looks at Adam and says, that creation is good. Then he sees that he's alone, and he's like, that's not good. That's not good. So what does God do immediately? He creates Eve, and there's community. He creates community perfectly in that moment. That is thumb stamped on your soul. You cannot argue. You can't press back against it. It's just the way God created it to be for all of us. We're all hardwired with a need for relationship. And this is where Christianity makes a hard right turn away from every other world religion. In every other world religion, the relationship is tacked on. It's secondary. It's not the main thing. But in Christianity, you just open your Bible and it's there. Love, connection, relationship with God. That's the very core of who God is. Why? Because he is triune. He is a community. He's eternally existing in a loving union of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And this is where it hits us. Because some of you want to press back. You're just like, I don't need anybody. I'm a rugged individual. I can do this world completely and totally on my own. And I'm going to make an appeal to you to say, No, you can't. It's not possible. There's something inside of you that yearns for it. Let me prove it to you. Why is it you check your Facebook 15 times a day? Why do you have to know? Did anybody comment on that post? How many happy emojis are attached there? Is anybody paying attention to my life? It's because you have an innate hunger to know that somebody else is noticing. Why is it that when you send a text, if you don't get a response within two hours, you start thinking to yourself, I wonder if that person's mad at me. I wonder if I sent the wrong stuff. Should I have typed in caps? Maybe I shouldn't have typed in caps. I wonder if they're angry. Are they angry? Are they distracted? Why aren't they paying attention and you are freaking out? Why do you cry when you watch a movie where two people who were once opposed to each other are suddenly reconciled? Why is it that there's a need inside of you to want to be a part of something bigger than yourself? Why is it that there's something inside of you that's absolutely crushed when suddenly there's a loss of relationship because of a breakup or because you lose a job or somebody you love has to move away to the other side of the country or, God forbid, there's a death? Why is there something inside of you that just, that, that just grieves that loss? Let me tell you what. It's because God wired you that way. You were made in the image of a triune God, and that very God who wants community and initiates community, he just gathers his group of friends, a broken group of human beings, and he hosts a small group. Let's keep going. When Jesus hosts a small group, he understands the innate need that we all have for friendship. Once again, to the introverts in the room, you do need other people. And I'm speaking to myself. Believe it or not, I actually am a screaming introvert. I like to be alone, but that's no excuse for me to not be connected in a way that God has called me to be. The American Sociological Review conducted a survey in 2014. They interviewed 1,500 people from a diverse set of backgrounds. And here's what they found, 25% of them, a quarter of them said they did not have a single human being in their life that they could share a trouble or a pain with, 25%. Here's what really hit me about this study. If they took out family members, that number doubled. Half of them said, I don't have anybody that I could share a deep pain or a trouble with. Janice Shaw-Krauss, she wrote a a book about that particular study, and she said this, the self-centeredness and isolation that results from a culture that's dominated by values of radical individualism, it's just simply not a pretty thing. It doesn't contribute to the maturing of individuals, the strengthening of family, the growth of friendship, or the development of communities. Basically, what she's saying is this, when it comes to friendship, we're horrible at it, and we're getting worse because we will not admit to ourselves that God actually wired us to be in relationship, in community. So what's the first thing Jesus does when He gathers His friends together? He gathers his friends together. And he invites all of us to participate in exactly the same thing, not as a program, but as a way of life. Let's keep going. When Jesus hosts a small group, he understands the spiritual significance of being together. Something happens when we're together. I can't tell you what it is, but I can tell you when it's missing. And I stood backstage and listened to you worship together. Something happens when God's people are together. But I need you to know, it has to be so much bigger than what just happens in this room. I mean, people actually think that this is enough. Can I plead with you? This is not enough. It's not enough teaching. It's not enough God. It's not enough relationship. It's not enough. In fact, I I get this picture in my head. Think of how crazy it would be if I told you, we're going to go over to the Chinese buffet over here on the corner. And here's what you're going to get to do. You have 27 minutes to consume enough nutrition for one solid week. Ready, set, go. 27 minutes. You'd go, that's crazy. But we do that with church all the time. Amen? Grant, you better bring it this week because this is all I got. No pressure. That's just foolish. We need to feed all week long. We need each other all week long. This, it's not enough. I preach it and I know it's not enough. Something happens when we're together. That's why Jesus said, where two or three come together in my name, there I am with them. There's a spiritual dynamic when we gather in his name. There's a power of God that actually resides in that gathering, whether it's big or whether it's small. Let's keep going. So Jesus gathers them, and then the craziest of things happens. He models the humility needed to serve. So Jesus walks into their room that night, into his little small group there with his 12 closest friends, and I love this. He doesn't walk in the door with the mentality, what's in it for me? I just, I can't even imagine what would happen to the body of Christ the King Church if we walked in the door and left that type of thinking at the door. What if we exchanged what's in it for me for, I wonder what God's going to have me contribute today. I wonder what God's going to allow me to participate in so that I could bless someone else. I just wonder. Jesus walks in thinking, what can I offer? Now, I want you to notice this. He has the power of Almighty God at His disposal. Jesus could have done anything He wanted to in this moment. He could have parted the wine in all of the cups. Just to show, yeah, I still got it, right? He walked on water. He could have walked on air around the room three different times and said, see? Jesus could have, if he wanted to, he could have changed Judas's heart just like that. But he doesn't do any of that. What does he do? He gets up in the middle of the meal, interrupts dinner, takes off his outer coat, Wraps a towel around his waist, grabs a bowl and some water, and starts heading towards Peter. And Peter freaks out. He freaks out, which teaches me something. When Jesus hosts a small group, he welcomes the awkward and the uncomfortable moments. We run from awkward and uncomfortable, right? Apparently, Jesus is just like, no, actually, this is going to be really, really good. Just stay with me. I mean, and Peter interrupts him. Oh, no, you don't. No, 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 no. This is not how this works. You're the rabbi. I'm the disciple. We're supposed to get some low-ranking servant to come and take care of the scrubbing between the toes thing? That's what's supposed to happen here. You just back off. Take your bowl away. This is not working for me, Jesus. It's too upside down. Have you ever noticed that God's got a thing for flipping stuff upside down? I mean, it's out of, it's out of death that God brings life. It's out of brokenness that God brings wholeness. It's out of twisted relationship that God brings this unbelievable friendship. So Peter, he's freaking out. This is not going to happen. And Jesus appeals to him, Peter, unless I do this, unless I serve you, you you and I are never going to be able to connect on this level. If you don't get that all of this is actually about serving people, here's what's going to happen. You're going to end up serving yourself. Because that's just the way humans are, right? You have an innate selfishness that always seems to come focusing back on you. And unless your heart is actually motivated to learn how to serve, just like I'm going to serve you, this isn't going to work. So here's the craziest moment. The Creator serves the created. God on His knees with a bowl, holding a foot that He made. That's crazy talk. Let's be honest, we don't like awkward moments. We don't like the fact that God's going to flip some things over for us. I love Peter's response. Okay, well, if you're going to do it anyway, don't just stop at the feet. Let's start at the head. Let's work our way down. Let's make sure we get the heart, the whole, the brain. I mean, I mean, everything needs to happen. God, you're going to need to soak me from the top of my head to the bottom of my feet. What's Peter saying? Peter's saying, if it comes to foot washing, I'm in. If Peter could have crawled in the bowl, he would have gone there. Absolutely dedicated to the process. So communities gathered, loneliness is banished, and now humility's on display. Let's keep going. When Jesus hosts a small group, he has grace for the brokenness of the people in the room. Jesus washed the feet of Judas. Think about that. Jesus washed the feet of the one who would betray him. That means none of us should be surprised that Jesus wants to do the same for us. Anybody else broken in the room today? It's like, oh, no, I know you guys are 1115. You're perfect, right? When we hear the word broken here in this context, we immediately think of Judas, but I want to remind you of something. Peter's broken. He's going to betray him too. Thomas is broken. He's not going to be convinced. He's going to come up with a whole series of questions. According to the Bible, 11 out of 12 are going to run the opposite direction and disappear. So apparently God has grace for everybody at that table. And I got a question for you, CTK. Over the next couple of weeks when students come running back in again and they're all moving into Western and Whatcom and Northwest Indian College and all that stuff's going on this week, when, when a bunch of other people figure out that summer's actually over and they start drifting their way back, are you, are you going to have room in your heart for other broken people? Or are we going to hang a no vacancy sign out in front of the building? I'm so thankful this place had grace for me. I didn't walk through the front door. Spiritually, I crawled through the front door. And somebody made a little room in another room, a little bit of space, where I could come and find out that God's amazing grace actually had a place for me too. Are we going to have room or not? Because apparently Jesus always has room. Let's keep going. When Jesus hosts a small group, He embodies the one another commands of Scripture. If you recall, when we read that, the Scripture from the very beginning, it says that at that moment when He washed feet, He actually showed them the full extent of His love. That's a pretty incredible statement. Some of your translations said it a different way. He loved them all the way to the end. But in that moment, Jesus was preaching every single one of the one another's. That's what we call them. Think about it. Love one another. Be devoted to one another live in harmony with one another, stop passing judgment on one another, accept one another, instruct one another, agree with one another, serve one another, bear with one another, be kind and compassionate to one another, submit to one another, forgive one another, admonish one another, encourage one another, spur one another on to good deeds, offer hospitality to one another. In case you're wondering, those are commands, not polite suggestions. To all of God's people. And he embodies all of these when he starts washing feet. Which leads us naturally to this next one. When Jesus hosts a small group, he goes first. This is what I love about my Savior. Jesus never asks his disciples to do anything he has not already done. He always goes first. Literally and figuratively, he always goes first first. So when He has the audacity to stand and say to us, I'm going to demand your life, your soul, and your all, the authority upon which He makes that request is the fact that that's exactly what He did. Gave up all. There's an initiation piece here. To those of you in in this room who actually lead small communities like this, we go first, don't we? We share, we model, we become transparent, we push, we go deeper, we wash feet. Why? Because that's exactly what Jesus did. Now, I know some of you are thinking to yourself, Grant, are you actually saying we're supposed to like, like do this, like scrub feet? Because some of you are like, nobody's ever touching my feet, ever, ever. That's just weird. And my answer to you would be, would you trust God enough to try? Because we are supposed to do it literally and figuratively.